Thank you for downloading and listening to the Berean Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Berean Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. I don't know if you, if you notice in your bulletin, what we do uh, each week, we pick out a verse that goes with the message. It might be from the passage. It may be a correlating verse. And you'll notice, and we put this in every week, and you'll notice that today's verse is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And uh, before we begin this morning, uh, I'd like to ask you to... Um, Think about this word courageous. What does the word courage mean to you? What would be your definition of courage? In fact, what I'd like you to do is just take a minute. We're kind of informal here. And um, I'd like you to turn to someone next to you. And if there's someone that you didn't come with that you don't know, this is a good chance to introduce yourself and meet them and uh, just exchange some thoughts for a minute. You know, you don't have to get and walk around. You find where you are. What would be your definition of the word courage? Just take a minute and talk to each other. Talk to each other. Talk, 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 talk. I know you can talk. I heard you before. Okay, let me hear. Um, let me hear from a couple of you. What are, what are, just raise your hand. A couple of you, and I, you know, we do have the uh, uh, we do have our internet uh, web uh, service, so people can listen to our sermons on the internet. So when I ask you something like this, I'll repeat your answer because they won't be able to hear it. Um, anybody have a definition? Yeah, Paul, taking action in the presence of fear. Very good. Thank you. How about from this section? Anybody here? Nobody? <laughs> Someone's pointing over there. I don't know who you're pointing at. Okay, Karen. Okay, right off the top of her head, she said, <laughs> I can't even, I, I, give it to me one phrase at a time. Mental or moral strength, venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, difficulty. Good. Okay, thank you. How about over, yeah, Sharon. Harold Perkeiser said, Oh, he's courage. Good. There's a living example of courage. Very good. That's exactly right. Thank you. Anybody else over here? Uh, Beth. Working in the nursery every Sunday. <laughs> okay. All right. That's my wife. She's very courageous. So, um, dic- uh, Another de- definition from the dictionary. It's also a good time to turn off your cell phones if you haven't done so. Um, the quali- this is what's interesting to me. The quality of mind or spirit that enables a person to face difficulty, danger, pain, without fear, and bravery. That's number one. There's, there's three dictionary, uh, three definitions. The third one, because I like, I think, Paul, you, you combine these two thoughts. I have to have the courage of one's convictions to act in accordance with one's beliefs, especially in spite of criticism, or we could say in spite of danger. And I think that that's a, a good thing to keep in mind, that courage has to do um, 
with your beliefs, but also with what you do. This last week, a, a book review. I like, I like books. I like to read books. And I like to read book reviews because then later on, if I see the book somewhere, maybe a couple years later even, all of a sudden something triggers. Oh, yeah, I remember reading about that. Uh, a Righteous Priest. This was in the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Friday, August 9th. Uh, this book review, that's the name of the book, uh, A Righteous Priest. At the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, some of you have been there and you've, and you've been to this part, there's a tree where the trees are planted in honor of a French priest, Pierre-Marie Benoit. He's one of the righteous among the nations. Non-Jews honored by the state of Israel for protecting and rescuing Jews during the bleak, uh, black moment in human history. Working with underground Jewish rescue organizations, he saved thousands, thousands of Jews in France and Italy. He was a tall, burly man with a long beard, always clad in the order's signature brown uh, clothes. He couldn't have gone about his rescue work unnoticed. And he had several close escapes from the Nazis. He began his work in France when a man visited his monastery and asked for aid for a Jewish girl and his family. One case led to another. And soon he gained a reputation as someone who could be counted on to assist the Jews. After a while, the trickle uh, swelled into a flood. And soon there was not enough false documents, enough hiding places, or enough money. In 1943, after the Germans occupied France, he was reassigned to Rome. And there, once again, uh, he began his work of rescuing uh, Jews. Much of his work was accomplished in the shadow of the Vatican, but not usually with direct knowledge, not under supervision. He even uh, secured a private audience with the Pope to try to help the Jews. He arranged for hiding places in religious institutions and schools. He hosted secret meetings of Jewish rescue organizations in his monastery. He persuaded sympathetic local officials to give him a blank residency permits and other documents that were then filled in with the names of desperate Jews. Um, he, he perceived the Jews as God's chosen people. And, but the, the key question for anyone writing about a rescuer during the Holocaust is this. Why would he do it? What inner resources did he draw on? Where did he find the moral conviction and the physical courage to risk his life over and over again in the service of people with whom he shared little but a common humanity? You know, it's one thing to be sympathetic. It's one thing to be concerned. But to risk your life. And I guess, you know, I would ask my, we would all ask ourselves the questions. You know, would, we, would we do that? It would be very easy to be concerned. It would be very easy to, to uh, agonize, to pray. Would we risk our lives to save other people? Would you do that? Would I do that? There would be many, many, many excuses, many reasons we could come up with to not do it. Um, just in closing, his experience as a soldier in World War I was influential. He was, for four years, he was a stretcher bearer on the Western Front. And it taught him not to back away from dangerous, difficult assignments. He had, a, he had a deep interior life, but his stint as a soldier taught him how to be a man of action. So in 1966, he was honored by Israel as one of the righteous among the nations. Courage. And this morning, as we open our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to continue our study from Elijah and we're going to look at, and I want to talk about this this morning. I want to talk about this, this topic of, of courage 
because it's a very important topic throughout the Bible. It's actually quite prominent in the, in the epistles and the stories of the apostles as well. Courage. You know, I think it's more than just um, overcoming fear. I think it has to do with acting in the face of fear to do what is right. To do what is right and to do what God has called you to do. And we're going to look at uh, two individuals this morning um, and talk about courage and doing what is right. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, uh, we, we love you, Lord. And we are thankful that you have given us uh, the complete scriptures. We need no other scriptures. Uh, we have the full revelation. And uh, we can learn from it. And again, as the Apostle Paul admonished, all scripture is profitable. All scripture is given that God's people would be strong, would be courageous, would be upright, would be righteous, and would be good workers and stewards of the mysteries you've in, 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 in entitled us to have. And so we pray for these next few moments that we would hear your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now in verse 1, we've been, if you're visiting with us today, uh, a special welcome to you, or if you've been gone. Uh, Steve Brewer, good to have you with us this morning. Steve's been in the hospital. Terry Stillwagon. Terry's here this morning somewhere. I saw her. There she is over there. Terry, so good to have you back with us this morning. Um, you know, for those who have been in the hospital, we've been praying for you. Anybody else I'm missing? That Doris won't be here this week, but hopefully soon. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, but and also will be visiting with us today. Um, a welcome. And uh, Greg and Laura are are here. Where yeah, and they're going to be leaving for Australia here another this week. Tomorrow, okay. Well, yes, this week. You know, good to have you guys with us. And they were here, of course, for the for the reception for Glenn last week and, and Lamu. So we've been studying Elijah, and we have seen that Elijah was the man who really was responsible from a human standpoint. Although God is in charge and God has planned this, but Elijah is the one who prayed that it would not rain in Israel. He lives in the north, where the ten tribes are. And it has not rained. It's gotten very desperate. It's gotten horribly desperate. We saw the first week that the lady he was sent to said, my son and I are just going to die because we cannot find water or food. It's a very desperate situation. Elijah has been staying with this lady as he raised her son from the dead. And he has been staying with her for uh, some time. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 18, after a long time, in the third, and incidentally, Elijah is up in what we would say in Lebanon today. He's, out, he's outside of Israel, up on the northwest, up in the coast of Lebanon. After a long time, in the third year of the drought, and we find out from the New Testament, it appeared it was about three and a half years. So it's coming toward the end of this time. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab. And I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now I'd like to just, what I'd like to do this morning is read this entire biblical uh, account, the story, if you will. And then we're going to go back and talk about it. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And verse 3, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. 
Ahab had said to Obadiah, Ahab's the king, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land and they went and they were to cover. Ahab going in one direction, Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What what have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, He made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me, go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab. Now, I want to, actually, we're going to talk about Obadiah this morning. Um, this Obadiah is probably not the prophet Obadiah of the minor prophets. Uh, now, there is some Jewish tradition. The Babylonian Talmud does identify this Obadiah as the prophet Obadiah. But most Bible scholars and teachers believe with the, the, the time setting of this does not fit with the time setting of the prophet Obadiah. And in fact, Obadiah was not an uncommon name. There are at least 13 of them mentioned in the Old Testament. So it's not just like in the New Testament, James and Jesus, you know, and John were, were common names, and Mary, Miriam were common names. Obadiah was not an uncommon name. So I'm, I'm going to suggest to you, this is probably not the prophet Obadiah, the minor prophet, but there are some who believe it is. Obadiah, it says here, is really the the, the king's first administrator. He is the one in charge of the king's palace. He is a Jew He's a devout believer in the Lord. His name, Obadiah, either means servant of the Lord or worshiper of the Lord. Most Bible scholars kind of tend toward the worshiper of the Lord. The, the actual Hebrew root, depending, it could, it could be either way. This morning, I want to, I want to just draw your attention to a phrase that's, that's twice, at least in my NIV translation. Verse 2, so Elijah went. Elijah went to present himself to the Lord. And then in verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab. Both of these men had no guarantees. You know, we, we know how the story ends. For the most part, we don't know how Obadiah's life ended. We know how Elijah's life, well, it didn't really end. He was taken to heaven, okay? Um, but if you put yourself in this time frame, they have no guarantees. This, this, as we read here, the queen, Jezebel, who is not Jewish, who is from the area where 
where Elijah has been living up in Lebanon, who's a worshiper of Baal and has been slaughtering prophets. These were, and these were prophets who worshiped God. And they were killed. There was no guarantee because you were a righteous person or you were a prophet that you wouldn't be killed. And in fact, the norm was more likely if you were a prophet, you probably would be killed. Remember Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 when he came to the end and he said, and he said, you, you're killing and destroying the prophets like your fathers have done, like you've always done. In fact, you killed the righteous one. You killed the Messiah. And if you read the Old Testament history and, um, and what we know of the, of, of the disciples, the apostles, all the apostles, as far as we know, were all martyred, including the apostle Paul. So I want to tell you is that it was probably the norm that the prophets would be killed. They would have to give their life. They would have to be martyred. And Obadiah, while maybe not a prophet himself, is certainly a servant of the Lord, a righteous servant, who, if Jezebel had any inkling what he was doing, she would kill him. Ahab, I mean, Elijah, being called by God to go and just publicly present himself to Ahab, who has obviously been looking all over the world, the known world for him, there is no guarantee. He says, go. He may go and make his proclamation, and the rain may come, and then Jezebel may kill him as well. That was probably the likely outcome from a human perspective. But I do want you to notice, Elijah went. Elijah went. He was obedient, and he was courageous. It doesn't mean he wasn't afraid. He might have had a lot of fear going to present himself we're going to see as, as the story unfolds, and of course many of you know the story of Elijah, but we're, we're going to look at it together. You know that he does get afraid. He is not immune to fear. And, but he goes because he's obedient and he's courageous. And he follows the Old Testament maxim given to, to, to Moses and Joshua, and especially to Joshua, do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous, for I, the Lord, will go before you. So he goes. Obadiah, like Elijah, goes. Obadiah has seen firsthand God's prophets, the righteous ones, slaughtered with the sword by Jezebel. This is the norm. Obadiah says, and it's interesting in the story, isn't it, that when Elijah asks him to go, that uh Obadiah says, why, why, do you, why do you want to kill me? Did you get the story there, what he says? He says, look at Ahab has been looking all over the world for you. And every place he goes, they say, we have not seen Elijah. And you want me to go and say, not only have I seen him, but he's coming to meet you at a certain time. What if the Lord takes you away? Now, I don't know if this was like part of the story that they kind of knew that, that God had a, had a habit of just picking up Elijah and taking him away. <laughs> we know he does later. Or if it's just more of the idea with the Spirit of God, this is the same word for wind and spirit, ruach in the Hebrew, the idea that, how, how do I know that you say you're going to come, but what if God takes you somewhere else? And then I'm standing here with Ahab, and you don't show up, he is going to kill me. There's no doubt. He doesn't say he might. He will kill me. And so that's his fear. But Elijah reassures him in verse 15, no, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, 
I will do this. I will come. And Obadiah went. Both those men did what God asked them to do, even though it was dangerous. Even though we know Obadiah is afraid. Obadiah doesn't say, oh, I'm not, no, no, no problem. He's afraid. He assumes he's going to be killed. But he goes. Courage. What did you say again, Paul Webster? What was your definition? Do you remember? <laughs> Taking action in the presence of fear. I like that. I think that's about as to the point. And it's not uh, taking action and not being afraid. It's taking action in the presence of fear, in the face of your fears, overcoming those fears in that sense of still doing what is the right thing to do. And both of these men did that. And I just, I just want to stop this morning and just take a couple minutes and talk about Obadiah. Obadiah is one of these unsung heroes of the Old Testament. If this is not the prophet Obadiah, he has not had a lot of press, a lot of ink spilled over him. He's just another person in the stories. But I, I just think there's a lot to learn from this man, Obadiah. I want you to stop and think for a few minutes of what this meant. You know, I, I read that story to you about the, the, the Catholic priest who was saving Jewish people. How many of you have been to Israel? How many of you have been to the Holocaust? Have you been to that to, to see the righteous, were the righteous Gentiles, the forest. You probably did. And maybe you saw that, I'm sure, if you went near Yad Vashem, it's the lined up the trees and each one planted in, in memory of a, of a righteous Gentile. Uh, Schindler's List. Some of you have seen that. Same, same story. And think about what Obadiah did here. Uh, go back to verse, uh, to verse 3. Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. He is on the inside. He is the king's top administrator. You could say the vice president if you want, although Ahab is a king. He is in the palace while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. She was slaughtering them right and left. We don't know how many. We're going to see later on in the story that Elijah assumes that they're all gone. In fact, it doesn't really tell us about these hundred. It just was This was a past event. For all we know, they're dead too now. I don't think so. But the, the point is, he just says, didn't you hear what I did? While she was doing this, I had taken, Obadiah had taken, and he tells the same story himself to, to Elijah, a hundred prophets, and I hid them in two caves, verse 4, 50 in each cave. And I supplied them with food and water. Now think about this. We've already talked about this famine in the land. There is no food or water for most people. You know, the lady that Elijah went to see, the, the widow was going to die, and she knew she was going to die because there was no food, and there was, she was down to her last little handful of grain and, and water, and they were going to have a meal and die. There is no food. How did Obadiah come up with food and water for a hundred prophets who are hiding? Two caves, and incidentally... One of the things, if, when you do go to Israel, uh, you might visit the Bell Caves. And you know, you had the story of David and his several hundred people hiding in a cave that Saul doesn't see. And he, how do those people hide in the cave? Well, these, these caves, are, some of them are like maybe half the distance to the ceiling, and they have a hole on top. They're kind of like a, a dome, kind of. And uh, they're very spacious. And they go back and back and back. I remember when we went to those caves in, in the Judean mountains. And so he found two caves. But think how risky this was. After all, 
uh, Obadiah says to Elijah, you have probably heard about this. Well, if Elijah heard about this, there were probably a lot of other people that knew about it as well. That Obadiah was risking his life not only to save a hundred prophets. He put 50 in that cave and 50 in that cave. He somehow managed single-handedly, we aren't told who's helping him, to come up with food and water for a hundred prophets on a daily basis. I mean, not only is he risking his life, he is taking action. He is committing his life knowing that at any second he could be killed. If, can you imagine if Jezebel got wind of this, that, that, Ahab, that Obadiah was hiding prophets from her that she was trying to kill? He would be gone. He would be probably tortured, excruciating pain, and slaughtered. But he kept on doing it. Why did he do that? Well, it tells you right there. Obadiah, in verse 3, was a devout believer in the Lord. It's no guarantee. You know, when you read the book of Hebrews, and there's that wonderful chapter in chapter 11 that we go, so often we go to about the, the heroes of the faith. It's the faith chapter in chapter 11. And the author, whoever it is, whether it's Paul or one of the apostles or, you know, who, who wrote this, he goes through all these these, these great men and women of the Bible, men and women, there were, there were heroes and heroines in the Old Testament. And he gets toward the end of this, and it's almost like he's running out of time, and he's got to wrap this up. Verse 32 of Hebrews 11, What more shall I say? I didn't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdom and all these things. Women received their dead back to life. But then you, you look at in verse 35 in the middle. Others were tortured and refused to be released. So they might pay, gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. Others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. That means stoned to death. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destituted, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. It tells you right there. We not only have these great heroes of the Old Testament that, that we read about, but we have many who we don't even know who they are who were slaughtered because like Obadiah, they were devout believers in Yahweh, in the Lord of Israel. Obadiah had no guarantee because he was doing this that God was going to spare him. The norm was he could expect to be martyred like the rest of the devout. But he did it. Look at this. This famine is so severe that Ahab, verse 5, says to Obadiah, Ahab has no idea he's doing this. And he says, Ahab, Obadiah, Obadiah we're going to split this job up. I'm going this way and you're going that way. Unless he trusted him so much, he says, we're going to go through all the land, all the springs, all the valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we won't have to kill our animals. And they divided the land and off they went to scour Israel. The king and his top servant were the two in charge to scrounge up some water and food so they wouldn't have to kill the horses. Now, in the NIV study Bible, if you have a study Bible, you may notice it says, there's a, a record in the Assyrian, I think it's Assyrian records, that refers to the fact 
that uh, Ahab had, uh, well, I'll read it right here. Um, according to the annals of the Syrian ruler, Shalmaneser III, Ahab could bring 2,000 chariots against him. 2,000 chariots, let's assume there's two horses per chariot, not like Ben-Hur with the four. You know, the ones that they fought in battle usually were two horses. That's 4,000 horses. If you have 4,000 horses, you probably have some backups, you know, and you've got, anyway, maybe as eight to 10,000 horses. We were at the fair this last week in the dairy barn. Now, this is the big dairy cow. It said that uh, the average dairy cow drinks a bathtub of water a day. Now, I'd have to defer to Sherry. How much water does, would a good, healthy horse drink a day? How, the horses you use for your chariots, how much? <laughs> Eight to ten gallons a day. Ten gallons of water for a horse to stay healthy. Multiply that by four to 8,000 horses that he has to come up with just to keep his ho- let alone the feed. I'm not going to ask you how much feed those horses would need, but think about it. There is no food and there's no water. This is how desperate it is. And off they go. But Obadiah the prophet is a man who is so courageous, he is so brave, he is, he is so committed to the Lord that he has somehow been finding food and water to keep a hundred prophets alive. And I didn't want to just rush by that story this morning on our way to finish the stories of Elijah. I wanted to stop and honor and recognize and acknowledge there were a lot of men and women in the Old Testament, a lot of men and women in the New Testament who were willing to be courageous because it was the right thing to do because they loved God. Were they fearful? Probably. Were they afraid? They're human. These are not one-dimensional stick figures. These are people just like you and just like me who face our fears. If I look at this congregation this morning, there are many things that, that we face. There are many choices that we have. Every day, we have, we have a choice to be courageous and to do what's right, what God would have us to do, or to find every excuse in the world to not do it. Some are very good excuses. But Obadiah was a man who was willing not only to be courageous, but to act on that courage. Not only to face his fears, but in spite of those fears, to still do what God wanted him to do. You know, this, this verse that I gave you from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Oh, incidentally, um, uh, next week Pastor Kevin's going to be preaching. And I'm going to come back to the story of Elijah the following week. So let's prepare for that. Um, verse 16, let's go back there. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and he told him, he, it doesn't, that's all he says. He told him, Elijah's coming to meet you. Be there. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And this is great. Uh, I'll just, we'll leave it right here. We'll lay it here. Come back to it. This is, this is, you know, Ahab says to Elijah, is that you, you troubler of Israel? <laughs> is that you? There you are. You're the one who's brought all this trouble on Israel. His wife, 
has been slaughtering the prophets. He has been leading God's people into worship of pagan idolatry. Now he, he, he is so far off. Talk about not getting it. Oh, there you are. You're the one causing all this trouble in Israel. And Elijah's response is, I've not made trouble for Israel, but you and your family have. Let's deal with it. And we'll come back to that in two weeks. Uh, that tremendous, uh, the, 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 the apex of this story of the, the, the challenge at Mount Carmel. First Corinthians chapter 16, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And Paul goes on in the next verse to say, do everything in love. You see, see, being strong and being courageous. Doing the right thing. Taking a stand for God and for what's right does not imply being mean, being harsh, being overwhelming. Paul says, do everything in love. Do everything in love. What it means is you love God so much that in spite of our humanity and our weaknesses and our sins, you know, Obadiah wasn't a perfect man. He was a sinful man, just like everybody else. But he loved God. And when the time came that something had to be done, he stepped up and he did it. With no guarantees of the future. But he did it. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul... Again, I just want to, I want to remind, this is, a, this is a theme that runs from Old Testament to New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, be courageous. Don't be afraid. I'm going with you. I'll go before you. In the early book, part of the book of Acts, Peter and the others, you know, these, these men, you know, think about it. These disciples who, when Jesus was being uh, questioned and beat by the authorities, they couldn't get away from him fast enough. And Peter comes around and hangs around the edge enough to where a lady says, hey, I know you, you're, you're one of his... No, I'm not. Peter swears up and down. He curses, he swears. He uses language he wouldn't normally use to say, I don't know him. And you open up the book of Acts and what do you find? Here's a man who, who, who's so courageous and, 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 so, and so sure of what he's doing he tells his own Jewish officials, you know what? I have to obey God, not you. You do what you want. You want to kill me, persecute, whatever you want, that's fine. But I'm going to obey God. What changed? What changed? Remember that song that was popular back, I think, in the 80s, I've Just Seen Jesus? Remember that song? I've just seen Jesus. And I'll never be the same again. He had seen the resurrected Lord. And the Apostle Paul, when he was doing his ministry, we read in the book of Acts, we read in the book of Acts, and in chapter 23, as Paul goes to Jerusalem, and it, it, things are in an uproar, he's causing trouble wherever he goes. He went to Jerusalem to share the ministry God had given him about the ministry of the Gentile world, why he was going to the Gentiles and teaching them they could come to Christ apart from any works of the law. God was doing something new, this church, the body of Christ, this, this age of the grace of God, and he goes to Jerusalem just... To hopefully to tell them this story and he, and, he's, and he goes there and when he gets there everything's in an uproar he's arrested he's hauled before the Sanhedrin and in verse 11 it says the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said Paul take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem so you must also testify in Rome Paul be courageous 
you know, why would God say that? Maybe Paul was afraid. Maybe it was like, what am I, you know, this is, I'm doing all this God told me to do, and it just keeps getting worse and worse. God says, he comes next to him, stands next to him. I don't know how that, I don't know how he stood next to him, but he did. I said, Paul, be courageous. But this wasn't the first time this happened. And I want to, I want this to be our last passage I want you to look at this morning. I want you to go back to Acts chapter 18. The verse in our bulletin this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. In chapter 18 of Acts, in the middle of Paul's ministry, when he first goes to the to the to to Greece, you know, he crosses over from Asia, from Turkey into Europe, into Greece, and he begins a ministry in in Philippi and Berea and Athens and Thessalonica, and he comes down to Corinth, which was the major seaport, a Roman Roman city, Roman seaport. And he gets down there, he begins preaching, he goes in the synagogue, and next thing you know, the synagogue splits, and part of them go next door. It'd be like if our church had a, you know, if our church had a, a, a split. And a third of you went with Gary and started a new church the next door over here. And a third of you went with Kevin and started a church behind here. It'd be a little awkward on Sunday morning, right? <laughs> when we come to church and we've had this horrible split and we're going, you know, here we are, right? It says that they went right next door to the president. I'm not suggesting one of these guys are planning that, by the way. But, <laughs> um, but he says they went right next door and, and they began a new house of prayer. And this is this is a... This is a horrible situation. This is not what Paul intended, but this is what happened. And it's an uproar, and there's these feelings and this danger and everything else. And it says, verse 9, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. We don't have the exact word, be courageous, but do not be afraid. Why would God do that? Paul was probably afraid. He wouldn't be afraid to say that. He was a human like you. I'd be afraid. I'd be afraid. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack you and harm you. As we close this morning, along with the emphasis this morning that God wants his people to be courageous and do the right thing when God puts it before you and you know what the right thing is. I want you to notice what he says here. Because I have many people in this city. What's he telling Paul? Paul, don't be afraid. You are not alone. Now think about this. Paul has just started this church there. He's the first evangelist or apostle that has come there. It tells us how the church at Corinth started. It just started. They just went next door. And and God says, Paul... Don't think you're the only one here, you know. I have many people in this city who are on my side, who are, who are, who are believers. Who were they? Where did they come from? Well, you know what? The chapter 18 opens up with, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. These Jews were in Corinth who were, they were already believers. Paul didn't even know until he met them. And the Lord says, Paul, you are not alone. I have many people in this city. And listen, we're going to see this. There's no big secret. We're going to see this in the life of Elijah, aren't we? We're going to see this. 
we're going to see that there comes a point in Elijah's life where he's so despondent, he wants to kill himself because I'm the only one left. And God's, God comes to him and says, no, you're not. No, you're not. What do you mean you're the only one left? The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 11 when he talks about when people say, well, has God rejected the Jews? And Paul says, no, he hasn't. I'm a descendant of Abraham. God doesn't reject his people. Don't you know the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I am the only one left. They are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul says at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. For those who are saying, so God's turned his back on Israel. Paul says, no, he hasn't. I'm a Jew. God has included Jews in what there is. God always keeps a remnant of grace. And he says, listen, Elijah said the same thing. And God says, no, you're not. There are 7,000 who have not bowed to, to Baal. And I just want to encourage you this morning, my friends, that sometimes you might feel alone. Maybe, maybe in your place of employment. Maybe in your neighborhood. Maybe in your school. You know, the community where you live. Maybe in your travels. Sometimes you, you, get, this, you get to the point where you feel like, you know what? We're the only, I'm the only one here who, who loves God, who's trying to do, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to do what God's leading me to do. You know, but I keep going through all this difficulty and I'm having this trouble and that trouble and this health problem and that relationship and finances and everything else. And I'm just trying to, and you know, I'm the only one. And, and you know what, if God could, would speak to us like he spoke to, to Paul and to Elijah and I'm sure to many others, and he is speaking to us through his word, the message would be, no, you're not. You're not the only one. You're not the only one who's ever gone through this. You're not the only one who's going through this. And you might, you know, and don't, don't put it by degrees and think, well, he's talking about somebody who's facing a humongous, you know, issue and so on. I don't, it doesn't matter what, you know, maybe there's something new in your life. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe your, maybe your children are heading off to a, to a new school, you know, a new class. You know, maybe you've got a big decision in front of you. Maybe something's come up that, you know, it's, you might think, well, this is not a big deal. I'm not going to bother people. I hear this all the time as pastor. I don't want to bother anybody. Pastor, I don't want to bother you. I'm sorry to call you at home. Don't ever start your conversation with me. I'm sorry to call you at home. Because you know what? I don't say that when I call you. <laughs> and when Susie calls you to ask in the nursery, work in the nursery, she doesn't say, I'm sorry to call you at home. Listen, you know what? Um, you, a lot of times we say, well, this is so... No, it's not. If it's important to you, it's important to... If it's important to you, it's important to God. You are not the only one. There are other people right now who are facing the exact same thing. You are not the only one at Boeing on the work site, in the retail store, at the coffee shop, at the retirement center, in your neighborhood, you are not the only one. You are not the only one. There are all sorts of people of like-minded faith who, who, who love God and want to live a life pleasing to God like you do, who work with you, who are in our government, 
who are in our government, who are in our schools, who are administrators, who are in the medical field, who are at Boeing and Microsoft, they are in construction, they are in the health services, they are in retail. We are not the only ones. And the wonderful thing about this is, it's not up to us. This is God's work. This is God's work. God knows how to take care of what he's doing. He has simply called you to be a servant, to love him. And when he puts something in front of you that might cost, it might cost. And it may not come out so well. And it could be anything as extreme as someone in Nazi Germany trying to save people from dying, knowing this will probably cost you your life. It might cost you promotion. It might cost you money. It might cost you a friendship or a relationship. It might cost you ridicule. None of us like to be ridiculed. It's not fun. But listen, the Bible message is, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. And please remember, you are part of a family. You are not alone, and you and I are not the only ones who are going through this. That's what it means to be part of a family. That's what it means. God loves us. Amen? God loves us. And God is in charge. And God knows what he's doing. My mother-in-law, in tongue-in-cheek, used to say, at least he thinks he knows what he's doing. <laughs> when something went wrong. God knows what he's doing, but at least he thinks he knows it. And she, of course, was a strong believer in the sovereignty of God, and she knew, and we know, he is doing what is right. Say it with me as we close the service. If you happen to memorize this, probably from the King James like I did, all things... Come on, say it with me. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Amen? Amen. Let's close our service with our last song. Thank you guys for leading worship. Aren't we blessed to have people that are, are, God's given so many gifts of music to? Aren't you glad I'm not leading singing? Huh? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> Thank you for coming this morning. And the last, you know, the last refrain we sang there, I choose. You know, we, we live in that, that continuum of understanding God's sovereignty and the Holy Spirit and God working in our hearts. To, Paul says, for it is God who is at work within you, both to what? To do and to will. To will and to do of his good pleasure. <coughs> Excuse me. So yes, there is that part of it that we choose. And I want to ask you today, <coughs> I'm choking, um, that if God's putting something before you in your life, that you know what is the right thing to do and you're struggling with doing it, but you know it's the right thing to do. I want you to consider that. We choose to do God's will. Gary, come and close our service in word of prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you that you are in control, and uh, we thank you for 
the way that you are working in circumstances, even when it seems like uh, you're not, that it seems like we have no idea what is happening, that you are present and that you have promised that you are a God who is with us in those circumstances. So we thank you for that. Uh, we pray for courage. We pray for boldness, that as we go into our world, that we may live faithful for, faithfully for you, uh, even in the face of our fears. Pray this in your name. Amen.